Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 14 of Speaking Up. This is a podcast about people standing up for the truth, stepping up on the issues of the day, and speaking up when it matters most. I am your host, Miles Taylor. We are doing this on Call-In, a social podcasting app that allows us to take questions from listeners. And you can also listen to the replay wherever you get your podcasts, whether on Call-In, Spotify, or Apple. Today, we are welcoming the extraordinary Ken Quapis to join us. Ken, I don't even know how to do an introduction for you because (laughs) I think most people don't realize you're the man behind many of the things in the cultural zeitgeist they've been saying for years, whether it was what you did on Malcolm in the Middle or The Office or The Bernie Mac Show or Freaks and Geeks or the film Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Uh, or most recently season two of Space Force. Like You've been behind the camera or writing these shows for many years. How do you introduce yourself? Oh, my gosh. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And I, I, I guess I would say that I've been very fortunate over the course of about four decades to, uh, to be involved with films and television shows that are quite I- unique. You know, shows shows like The Office that are not down the middle, that are not traditional, uh, you know, and films like Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, which have become quite beloved uh, by by a lot of people. So again, I'm, I'm not sure if that's a good introduction, but I again, I guess the way I'll introduce myself is I'm a director, and I'm very fortunate to have been involved in so many good projects. Well, I, I've got to say this. I mean, you are certainly. Um, you're the apostle of workplace comedies. I don't know if anyone said that. And if not, I want to trademark it, Ken, <laughs> that you're the apostle of workplace comedies. But before we dive into what that means, I actually, I'm curious to ask you, I've never asked you, um, of all the projects you've worked on in this space, do you have a favorite? I mean, is there a baby out there where you say, man, I go back to that and you make yourself laugh when you see it? Oh my gosh. Well, I have to say that there are some, you know, there there are some individual episodes of shows like Malcolm in the Middle that 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 I find that were so ambitious and and turned out so well, and 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 uh, I certainly love, you know, certain films I've made over the years that didn't always get the notice they deserved when they were released, but have since become audience favorites. I'll just mention one. It's a film I'm incredibly proud of called Dunstan Checks In, starring an orangutan. Yes. <laughs> and, I, uh, I remember it well. And uh, in some ways that film is all too resonant of, of my life. Um, <laughs> I want uh, I'm curious to ask you, I mean, Ken, I have all kinds of folks on this podcast, presidential candidates and politicians and, you know, disruptors in the economy talking about speaking up. You speak up in a really unique way medium using film and television to say things about the world uh what what brought you into storytelling i'm just curious to hear what your journey was into the world of storytelling you know i i ever since i was a kid i i loved going to the movies my parents used to basically yell at me for going to the same movie over and over again but i i've that that was where i got got my storytelling education was in the two or three movie theaters in the small town of Belleville, Illinois, a town in southern Illinois, about six-hour drive south of Chicago. It's closest, actually, to St. Louis. And uh, and I would say I, I started as a director with a, I would say, a, a healthy 
uh, ability to, or a good ability to, you know, kind of figure out how to frame a, frame a shot, how to create an image, how to move a camera. And over the course of the years that I've been a director, what I, what I've discovered, and, and, and this is the key thing, I've discovered that the key to being a great director, and I'm not one, but I aspire to be, the key to being a great director is to become a great student of human nature. So that's been my ongoing project. Figuring out what I can do to put something human in front of the camera. We are fellow Midwesterners. And for some reason, I've met people from every part of this country, all 50 states. I traveled to 60 plus countries. There's something about Midwesterners uh, where they're able to really see the folly of human nature, but also the silver lining. Uh, Midwesterners just seem to be really candid observers of people and what's happening around them. I don't know the answer to this question, but why the hell is that, Ken? (laughs) Well, I think that, I mean, maybe it's, I guess I can only speak for myself, but I guess part of it is for me growing up outside of any cultural center and, and sort of feeling like you're always looking in to find out what's going on. So I was always, as a kid, I was, you know, always reading about things happening elsewhere. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I love where I grew yeah. up. I love, I love St. Louis, but you know, for me, it was like picking up the arts and leisure section on a Sunday to see what was happening in New York or reading, you know, Rolling Stone to find out what was happening in a music business that was basically, uh, you know, Los Angeles based. So I felt, feel like maybe my sense of, uh, I don't know what I don't want to say observation, but my sense of like what's going on in the culture was was um, you know kind of created because I wasn't part of it because I was at arm's length from it. I, I, my town was a little town in northwest Indiana, uh, you know, basically surrounded by cornfields. I sort of mm-hmm. feel like you know, as as they say in in the sciences, the absence of something kind of gives you the run room to imagine what would either be there. It's why people are scared of what's in a dark basement. They don't know what's there. So they imagine the worst mm-hmm. in a, in a corn encircled town, you kind of just, your imagination runs wild. <laughs> you think about everything that could be, you imagine there's crop circles in the corn and it's aliens. I mean, you get pretty inventive. Um, were you as a, as a young person, a creative story writer, did you do, you know, kind of short stories with your friends and, and family before you made your way out West? I, I did not, but it's funny you mentioned absence because I, I can relate to it in a very specific way because as a teenager, um, I started to read about a lot of films that I couldn't see because they're, they're, they didn't come to small towns like Belleville. So I was reading about it. I'd go, I'd go to, you know, Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville. I'd go to the library there and, and read about, uh, films that didn't play in the Midwest. I read about, you know, the Ingmar Bergmans of the world, the Fellinis of the world, the Kurosawas of the world. These films only rarely, uh, showed up. And so I, 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 I think what happened is I started to imagine more. I mean, I, I can tell you about a lot of films I've never seen, and I'll bet you I can describe them in great detail, and I've never seen them. <laughs> uh, when, to take us out west, I mean, when you made your way to Hollywood, was there a, a moment, Ken, when you felt like, I'm in it now? I'm, I'm not just the outsider. I'm not just the kid from the Midwest reading about the movies and TV. Um, I'm, I'm making them. Uh, what was that 
kind of moment for you if there was one? I think there have been many moments like that over the years. You know, the last feature film I directed was uh, A Walk in the Woods based on Bill Bryson's memoir about walking the Appalachian Trail. And one of the stars of the film is Robert Redford. And um, there, there was on more than one occasion working with Robert Redford, I just had to stop and pinch myself and, and say to myself, that's Robert Redford. <laughs> it's like, so I think that uh, to this day, I'm still uh, uh, I'm still having I'm still experiencing moments like that. Like, wow, I, am, am I doing this? Am I really I, doing I this? I finally found my one degree of separation from Robert Redford. It's you. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious to hear, you know, I'm sure you don't want to say anything bad about him. Only good things. So tell me, was there anything surprising about working with Redford that you didn't expect? Well, it was all positive. And, and for starters, you know, Redford is not only an actor, but a director and a producer. But when we started work together, he said to me, he goes, I'm going to take my producing hat off. I'm going to take my directing hat off. I just want to perform. I just want to create a great character. And Robert Redford has, I would say, you know, by and large, the roles he plays are you know, dramatic roles. Uh, there's certainly humor in, in many of his most memorable roles. But by and large, he tends to, you know, kind of kind of gravitate towards dramas. But A Walk in the Woods playing Bill Bryson, you know, it, it's basically it is a character that has a lot of humor. And so I think he really uh, trusted me to kind of help him create a comedic performance and uh, or I should say, to, you know, to, to give a comedic performance. Here's the here was the best thing about the experience for me is that every yeah. weekend. Robert Redford and I had dinner together and the, and the ostensible purpose of our dinner was to like talk about the following week's work. So I, we'd meet at a restaurant and bring my script. And I would say over the course of the seven or so weeks that we worked together, I don't think I ever opened the script once, but instead we, I just listened to him as he told stories about his 50 years in show business. And I was just, I mean, talk about a kid in the candy store. I just, you know, I sat back and just listened to stories about, oh gosh, you know, everything from getting a, how excited he was to get a bit role in an episode of Route 66 to, uh, to, you know, optioning all the president's men and trying to convince Elia Kazan to direct the film. Elia Kazan turned him down. So, I mean, it was just week after week. I just sort of sat there and soaked it up. Robert Redford's one thing. Uh, I think we're all fans. Ken Quapis, I hope, has equally incisive observations about a career in Hollywood. I, I want to ask you about those. Because, again, back to the theme of speaking up, there's something about art and the art form that you undertake in film and television where you can say things without it being in your face. I mean, it's one thing for a politician to go to a microphone and say, you know, defund the police or double the size of Medicare or, you know, it's very, very direct, but art, you can almost convince someone of your position through empathy or mm -hmm. as is often the case in your career through humor by poking fun at things, sometimes poking fun at yourself. What have mm -hmm. been some of those big lessons you've learned in storytelling about how to get a message across to folks without just stuffing their faces with it? 
Well, I'll, I'll use the office as an example. And, and again, I speak as a director of the show, not as one of the writers. But you know, one of the great things about the office is that Steve Carell's character, Michael Scott, is you know, wrongheaded about just about everything. Um, and so he, he would he, he would often say the most impolitic things. And yet you cut him a lot of slack because as, as much of a boob as he is, you know, he, he, he'll always do one thing to redeem himself at the end of an episode where most of what he says is really offensive. So I think in a weird way that, uh, for instance, if, if you want to tell a story about um, homophobia, which the gay witch hunt episode is all about when I directed, you have no better tool than the character of Michael Scott, who just says the most dim-witted things about <laughs> gay men and women. And, and again, he, he, allows, he allows the audience, uh, or rather what, what the episode does, is it sort of, it speaks truth, but through a very uh, unexpected you know, prism. I think I'm mixing my metaphors all over the place here. I'm not sure if prism can be unexpected. Let me put it di- 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 a little bit. <laughs> it's why you're a director, Ken. It's why you're a director. <laughs> if I read that, I'd say, no, you can't say an unexpected prism. The, um, the, no, I just, I just think that there are ways that a show like The Office can, can uh, say things that are actually quite forward thinking in a way that the audience uh, will will accept and embrace, uh, even if they don't agree with what's being said. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned The Office and your ability to do that. I, I, I am genuinely interested to hear whether you think some of the episodes of The Office that you directed could even be directed today. And I say that not because The Office itself, I think, is offensive or anything along those lines. I was watching, actually, I, I can't even believe I'm admitting this, but the other day, Hannah and I were watching um, the movie with Sandra Bullock, where she works for the FBI. I'm totally blanking on what the name of that movie is. Um, it'll come to me. But, uh, you know, where she's an FBI agent and she goes undercover in the Miss America pageant. And it is uh, it's a funny movie. There are some mm-hmm. lines and moments in there you just could not say today. And it doesn't feel like that long, a miscongeniality. It doesn't feel like that long that miscongeniality was out. You couldn't shoot that script today. Um, mm-hmm. Do you look back and ever feel that way about how comedy has evolved? Uh, that some things that you really cherish, you think, oh, wow, we couldn't do that today. Uh, and, and how do you process that? Well, I guess, I guess the answer is, is that... There's a difference between, you know, a character's point of view and the film, the film or television show's point of view. And as long as that there's a clear difference, you know, for instance, the things that Michael Scott says about uh, homosexual homosexuality mm-hmm. and gay witch hunt does not, you know, these views do not reflect. You know, I mean, the, it doesn't reflect the point of view of the show. In fact, there's a there's a very deliberate distance between you know, what the show's saying and what the character's saying. Unfortunately, it, it you know it, it the line may be blurred in many people's minds, so it may feel like the show is actually saying something that's homophobic, 
or racist or sexist. And I've, I've directed episodes of The Office that deal with all three of those, one called Sexual Harassment, one called Diversity Day about, about racism. And, and, but in e- each of those episodes, there seems to be such a clear distinction between what Michael Scott says and what he believes and what the show says and what the show believes. I, and th- you've literally listed off, I think, some of the funniest episodes of The Office in that case, and also ones that are really instructive and have a powerful message. Uh, do you see that, though? Do you see that there is um, there's a harder time convincing people that the character has a different perspective than the show? I mean, is it getting harder to do comedy in some cases? Do you feel like there are more landmines out there? Or is that just kind of a, you know, something that's being, the flames of which are being fanned in certain corners of the media? No, I think it's definitely, it's, it's definitely a little trickier now. And, and, but I also wonder if, um, it's not that we, it's not that, you couldn't do an episode like Diversity Day anymore. I think you can. The question is whether that episode would be the most relevant way to treat the subject now. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that um, I remember when we were shooting the gay witch episode, the, the climax of the episode is that, you know, Michael Scott is so determined to prove to his employees that he's a forward thinking fellow that he insists on kissing Oscar the accountant in front of everyone. And, and the kiss is one of the most uh, painful <laughs> kisses I've ever seen. Uh, and, and afterwards, Greg Daniels, the, you know, the, who runs the show took me aside and said, you know, Ken, if that, if this were 1979, that would be breakthrough television. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm glad you mentioned that crew. Greg Daniels, Steve Carell, you recently had, I, I suspect in your mind, the very good fortune to be reunited with those folks. You uh, helmed season two of Space Force on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And so you were you were back in the saddle with Greg and with Steve Carell and, and I'm sure others. Uh, what did it feel like to have that, that group back together after some period of time? It was, I mean, it was a fantastic reunion. It was also a first for me. It was the first time I, I've ever been invited to direct an entire season of a show. Now, granted, Space Force season two only has seven episodes, seven half hour episodes, but still that's the equivalent of directing like a three and a half hour feature film. And, um, so that was, that was a first. Again, working with Greg and Steve again was, was a, it was a wonderful reunion, but I also was given a particular task. I mean, I mean the, the, you know, as strong as the first season of the show is, I think Greg and Steve you know, wanted some changes and, and they invited me in no small part to, to make a shift in the tone of the show, to make a shift in what was, what the focus of the show was. And uh, so again, I, I feel like in addition to kind of reconnecting with two important colleagues uh i had to kind of up my game because I, I i was given a very particular task it wasn't like oh this show's you know running perfectly just keep doing it this was like no we want to shift something we want to actually shift something you know on a on a on a, you know, a, a fundamental level 
And, and I'm happy to go into some detail about what that was. Um, the, I, the, I would love you, I'd love you to, Ken. I want to say just to interject, because I know you won't applaud yourself this way. You know, season one of Space Force had maybe something like 30% on Rotten Tomatoes. Season two of Space Force, when I looked the other day, was somewhere around 90%. Not to say that, you know, I'm sure season one is always hard. It's always hard to start a show and bring new characters in and get people integrated. Um, but it's also really hard uh, to to build on that and go into a second season. And, and if the reviewers are worth listening to, um, you hit it out of the park. I, I loved it. People really loved the character development in season two, how do you, how do you tackle that? How, how do you go into a show that's already been started and figure out how to uh, really zoom in on those human characters and, and make them relatable? I, I, I'm very eager to hear how you took on that show. Well, again, I, I'm the director. I'm not the writer. I, I mean, first and foremost, you know, between Greg Daniels and Steve Carell, who is one of the writers, and Norm Hiscock, who's one of the, who's like the co-showrunner of season two, wonderful, fantastic writer. Uh, I mean, the three of them, uh, you know, sort of led the charge, and 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 the, you know, what, what all of us tried to do is kind of make make the characters the, the focus of season two. The first season, I think. Uh, was generally satiric in its in its uh, approach. It also um, at times was very stylish, very visually stylish. And when Steve and Greg and I spoke uh, before beginning of season two, I, I think that Steve in particular felt like you know they're, they're the core group of actors in Space Force is such a remarkable group. I mean. John Malkovich, you know, Don Lake, you know, Tawny Newsom, Jimmy O. Yang. I mean, many of them like incredibly gifted improvisers. And Steve just felt like, you know what, let's let's figure out a style for the show that really maximizes performance time. You know, we have such good people. Let's let them do their thing. So that was my job is to figure out how to make a, uh, a show that that has a style that has a look that has a good look that's cinematic and yet that that doesn't lead with style that in fact lets the lets the characters uh keeps the spotlight on the characters keeps the spotlight on on performance and uh so i there's a lot of small you know decisions i made to help that out but that was that was the main thing is kind of how to how to uh Keep the spotlight on character development. Now, the other important thing about Space Force Season 2 is that it's really a story about Space Force as an underdog. I think Season 1, you know, again, part of part of the humor was that it was a little bit making fun of this new branch of the armed services. But Season 2, after, after a you know, near calamity on the moon, uh, Space Force is on probation. They've only got a few months to prove themselves. Uh, Steve's character, General, General Naird, may be replaced uh, if he doesn't prove the worth of the of the space force. So they are from the get go an underdog group, and 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 then as individuals, each of each of the main the core group, there's like eight core members of the ensemble, has a very specific character arc. So I, I just feel like it was, from a character and a storytelling standpoint, it was really rich. Uh, 
And I'll just mention one small thing. Diana Silver's wonderful actor who plays uh, Steve's daughter in the show. In oh, the yeah. first season, her storyline had really had nothing to do with Space Force. I mean, she's in high school. She Her, her storyline was always something that you'd cut away to to follow what's going on with her. But uh, Steve and Norm and Greg came up with a really smart idea in season two that she should be an intern at Space Force. She's getting ready to go to college. An internship at Space Force might look good on her resume. So she's part of the group. She's part of the workplace family. And uh, again, a, a small, uh, actually not a small, a smart and, and, and really, uh, you know, a, a choice that really helped her character. I I don't want to spoil uh, the show for anyone who hasn't seen it, but there is uh, an interesting aspect towards the end of the show that rhymes a little bit with Adam McKay's film on Netflix, Don't Look Up. And you guys go from these great character stories in the show and hint at some really interesting bigger picture themes of human folly and sort of, you know, whistling past the graveyard if you will, uh, is that an, was that an intentional thing is, is to go from focus, focusing on these, you know, small character dramas to extrapolating something bigger about society and, and human folly. I, I would love to get your take on that without spoiling the finale. Well, I guess the best way to say it is as a storyteller, you know, this, this is the classic image the classic analogy you want to you know chase your hero up a tree and then throw stones at him and make it as difficult for him to come down as possible so i think they they what what we did at the end of season two of space force is create a new problem that to my mind is impossible to solve <laughs> so, and i and i think that's good storytelling you know there's a great um, there's a great uh thing that Steven Spielberg once said, I hope, I hope Spielberg said this. I, I've heard this. I hope he said this. He said that as a director, your job is to paint your hero into a corner, but sometimes you paint your hero into a corner so well that the only way to let him out is to let him run through the paint and hope the audience doesn't see the tracks. Have you found yourself in that circumstance? What 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 paint footprints are still on the floor? <laughs> and Ken Guapas' yeah, we'll work. We'll find out. We'll find out in the next season. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, but that's I, it's that's what you want to do. You want to you want to put your hero in an impossible situation. You know, Ken, sticking with the uh, the the concept and the moniker that I, I know you're not going to adopt of being the apostle oh. of workplace comedy, but uh, but that said. You must have something to say about what makes a good workplace, especially since you've done so much poking fun at bad and dysfunctional workplaces, which is pretty much the most relatable feeling to any human being who's ever been in the workforce. We've all had a buffoon like Michael Scott. We've all had, you know, a colleague like a Jim. I mean, we've all had experiences like that. What makes a good workplace or what makes an especially bad one. Uh, you've, you must have keen observations on that. Well, it's funny. I, I hadn't thought about this until working on space Force season two, but the, the thing I just mentioned that the group itself, the workplace family is a kind of underdog. I think is something that can 
really make a strong, make for a strong workplace story or a workplace comedy. So let me just mention a couple others that I've worked on. I helped launch the NBC show Outsourced. And Outsourced is, uh, I think, the first broadcast network show ever set in India, set in Mumbai, set in a call center in Mumbai. And um, so all of the characters are the people that we, Americans, speak to when our you know computers break or when we want to order something from a catalog. Yeah. And, and so they are, I think, on the receiving end of a, uh, probably a lot of frustration from Americans at times. And uh, so in a way, they are, I think, a perfect underdog group. They are, you know, they are a, a call center servicing American customers. Um, in the early 90s, I had the, uh, the pleasure of helping launch the HBO show, The Larry Sanders Show, which really was a game changer for half hour television. And and uh, although the subject itself is not innovative, it's a you know it's a backstage story about putting on a talk show. The style you know the style of the Larry Sanders show and the and the and the quality of the writing really set it apart. But again, I feel like that show were and the characters at times are behave in very reprehensible ways. But as a group, I also think of them as an underdog because they they're they are working hard on something that's really low on the, you know, cultural totem pole talk shows. It's not a show about, it's not a backstage story about putting on opera. It's not about what goes on behind the scenes at the Metropolitan Museum. It's about putting on a talk show. So I feel like there's always right. this sense of having to you know, come from behind to prove your worth because you're doing something that a lot of people wouldn't consider culturally important with with the larry sanders show for people who didn't watch it especially gen zers millennials that are listening that show spun out a ridiculous number of famous hollywood comedians and directors and writers like from you ken to judd apatow to i was just like you could just go on and on so many people you know jeremy piven i mean just so many people mm -hmm. acted in that show or wrote on that show that later stayed in the space what was unique about that why did why did we see so many comedians and top comic talent come out of the larry sanders show and, and of course you guys had on like every big name had a guest appearance in the show. Um, it's like this sort of stunning nexus when you talk to folks and they're like, oh yeah, I used to work on the Larry Sanders show or I was on the Larry Sanders show. It's, it was like ground zero for everyone who's doing comedy today in some way. Well, I, I, it's hard to, I mean, I can't answer the question about why so many, why that became such a springboard for so many people. But what I can say is why I feel the show is important. And, and one of the reasons is that unlike a lot of television shows, the Larry Sanders show is a very personal project for its creator, Gary Shandling. It, it, you know, Gary created a character, Larry Sanders, who really was a, um, at times, uh, far too accurate reflection of himself. And, and I, I feel like he used the show as a, as, Strangely enough, as an opportunity to study himself, 
to, to, it was like to put himself into therapy. In fact, I think he used to joke while we were working on the show that, you know, that he, he used up, you know, each, each therapy session that he actually went to, he used up the whole hour just telling the therapist the plot of last week's episode. <laughs> so the, I mean, I think that that alone kind of makes it, you know, distinct. It also had a very radical visual idea. And that is it was shot in the backstage portions were shot in 16 millimeters. So they had a slightly, I don't know, grainy documentary look to it. In contrast, the show within the show, the talk show itself was taped on one inch tape in the style of the tonight show. And so uh, there was a wonderful, just cinematic energy that was produced by simply intercutting between these two formats between one inch, between a very slick looking one inch tape and a grainy 16 millimeter. But I think the main thing is that the, 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 the quality of the writing, it was, it was not a jokey show. In fact, it was not, a, it was, I mean, Larry Sanders is a talk show host, so he makes jokes. There's a monologue. He's, but the characters themselves, the backstage stories were not full of jokes. The, the humor, the comedy was very uh, behavioral. It was about, it was about, it was character. It was characters first and foremost. People weren't cracking jokes. They may have been pitching jokes to each other. That's part of the story, but they weren't, you know, it, it wasn't like a lot of uh, traditional multi-camera comedies. It was very, it, it had a very kind of weirdly low key and observant approach. Uh, so anyways, for your listeners who don't know it, it's, it's definitely worth Definitely worth dipping a toe into that one. You sort of anticipated one of my questions by talking about how Gary Shandling, who was the star of that show, and I love just the fact that his name basically is a version of Larry Sanders, uh, and he plays that character, that he almost wrote that show in a way as a form of therapy. I mean, comedy is a really useful way to identify and try to move past our shortcomings um, I'm not going to force you, Ken, to opine on our politics, or at least big P politics in the United mm-hmm. States. I know that's an important thing for someone like you to steer away from, at least in terms of picking sides. But when we look at the brokenness in our political system, when we look at the divisions in society, I think everyone escapes to television and film right now, and more so than it feels like we almost ever have, because of the just general cacophony out there uh do you view comedy as as sort of a societal therapy uh in some way shape or form i mean t- take us onto the ken quapis therapist couch tell oh, us how god. we get out of this hellhole through comedy i guess that's my question my gosh first i'm an apostle now I'm a therapist. <laughs> national <laughs> therapist ken quapis says watch the uh, runs of the office to recover from societal discord you know i think that it's a tricky question because there are so many different kinds of comedy that can satisfy. Um, and, and I would say that, you know, there are certain kinds of comedy that are so specific to what's going on in the culture. Uh, for instance, you know, it's possible that an episode of the office culturally might not make sense, you know, in, in different countries. Whereas an episode of Malcolm in the Middle with its uh, emphasis on visual humor and physical comedy may travel more easily 
across borders. So, I mean, I think it's it's a tricky question. I I, I would say that um, I love both. I mean, by the way, it, when Malcolm in the Middle started, I think in the early aughts, I had this wonderful uh, six-month period where I worked on two shows. I worked uh, on Malcolm in the Middle, and I worked on Freaks and Geeks, and two more different shows, you know, I can't imagine, stylistically anyways. Uh, you know, Freaks and Geeks uh, had a very, you know, very low-key style. The, the, the approach was, uh, it was, it was certainly not mock documentary, but there was a little sense that we were just observing, you know, from a, from a directing standpoint, observing the, these very fascinating, flawed teenage characters in action. Whereas Malcolm in the Middle was just the opposite. It was, it was about really choreographing things. Uh, and, and, you know, it had a very wonderfully presentational style. It was very in your face. Uh, and, and, and I, Often heard it described as high definition comedy. Um, so I think it was, it was for me, and I'm kind of answering your question, but for me, I loved being able to exercise those different creative muscles, you know, back to back, literally going back and forth between two equally strong, but very different shows. I'm going to put you on the spot here again. Mm-hmm. And maybe you're not going to answer this. Mm-hmm. Who Who is the funniest person that you know in Hollywood or have worked with? Someone that you may not necessarily say is the funniest in the world, but that makes you can laugh. I mean, you've worked with the likes of Steve Carell, and we could go down the list. You've worked with so many funny people. Who just makes you laugh un, unprompted all the time that you've worked with? Well, I... You know, I'm just going to go right to Steve because I worked with him most recently. And, you know, I, I, I try my best when I'm directing to stand near the camera, not to sit at a monitor far away, but to stand near the camera. And I, I believe that actors appreciate the fact that, you know, out of their peripheral vision, they'll see me sort of like my shoulders going up and down when I'm actually trying my best not to break up laughing during a take. And it was particularly important directing during the pandemic because I was wearing two layers of PPE, an N95 and a face shield. So like people couldn't see my mouth. So all they could see, <laughs> I remember Steve saying, we're, we're, we always glance over and if you, we can tell from your eyebrows whether you're enjoying the take. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I would say with Steve, to answer your question, there was always, that, that's the, that's the most dangerous part of directing Steve is as a director, you're, 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 you're really going to break up the take now and then because it's it's just too it's too hard not to not to laugh. I, I have to ask you, uh, you know, someone like him. Uh, how often is he, you know, following the 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 script, and how often going off script? I mean, obviously, on a show like Space Force, where where Steve is is writing some of the show, they clearly will think what they've got on the page is funny. But, um, you know, as a director, do you nudge folks like him to, you know, go extemporaneous? And, uh, and, and uh, do, do you keep those takes after the fact? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, again, Steve is, um, among many things, like uh, an incredibly gifted improviser. So there were times in, in certain scenes, cer- there were certain moments where it just felt like he could riff on an idea. I'll just mention one that I, I really love from season two is, uh, when, when Steve's character, General Naird, is really angry 
at Malkovich's character because Malkovich has uh, encouraged all the other scientists to pull pranks on each other. And one of the pranks, one of the pranks they pull is on Steve. And, and, and Steve doesn't find the prank funny and then launches into a litany of what he thinks is funny. And, and the litany, I don't even remember what was in the script, but Steve just kind of came up with his own version of it. Take, you know, take to take it changed, but a lot of it had to do with, you know, uh, you know, a dog with peanut butter on its nose. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A dog wearing underwear. It seemed to be <laughs> kind of do it, a dog run. <laughs> but uh, I would say with each take, he, he just sort of switched it up and kept coming up with different ones. Uh, Don Lake, who plays uh, General uh, Brad. I don't. I can't think of his last name, but he plays Brad, who is uh, Steve's sidekick in Space Force is perhaps one of the most wildly gifted improvisers I've ever met. I mean, Robin Williams level. Uh, he, I mean, he, you can just, he can just take a line of dialogue and spin so many variations on it. Um, so I, I would say that on Space Force, there were a number of people, Tawny, oh my gosh, and Ben Schwartz, oh lordy, uh, who just, you, you don't want to, um, you know, you, you, I mean, you, obviously, improv, you know, is, 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 can be a mixed blessing because sometimes it, it tends to kind of go, go way off script. But when the actors keep it in character and keep it focused on what the scene's about, it's breathtaking. Yeah, I, I, you mentioned Ben Schwartz. Not long ago, I watched Middle Ditch and, and Schwartz on, on Netflix. Mm-hmm. You know, he and Tom Middle Ditch do this improv where they go to, you know, major theaters around the country and they do a, an almost hour long full improv show where they interview the audience. They prompt them with some questions that, you know, they pick someone in the audience, ask them about a, an event they've been to or something they're dreading. They try to get as much information as possible. And then the two of them put together a completely authentic hour long fake goofy story based off of that. Sometimes it goes just completely off the rails it's incredibly funny, but looks remarkably hard to do. I mean, as a director, um, do you have tricks of the trade to kind of coax strong improv out of folks, or do you just see the lightning and try to catch it in a bottle when it happens? No, I, I mean, I think with I mean, I think with someone like Ben, well, with that whole group, I mean, with with I think the goal. Of, for, at least for me as a director, is just to set an atmosphere, to create an atmosphere on the set where those actors just feel loose. You know, I mean, trust me, there are a lot of uh, writer directors or writer producers, I won't name anyone, but who will, you know, who will say, oh, no, no, I put a comma in that line for a reason, so make sure there's a pause there. You know, uh, so I, I don't think I, <laughs> I don't think I could ever ask a, 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 an actor to observe a comma. Uh, but there are definitely, you know, there are definitely some shows where it's like, nope, it was written this way. You say it this way. And, uh, but I, I, you know, when you have a group of people like, you know, people like Ben and, and Steve, Don and, and, you know, Diana, et cetera, the goal is to make, create an atmosphere where they feel like they are, uh, what's the right way to put it? They feel comfortable going out on a limb. And of course, you know, sometimes your job is to say, eh, that limb's going to break if you go out any further. But 
if you know you want them to feel unafraid to fall on their face that's for me good directing and i think that's a really good note for us to start to wrap up on but I, I want to ask you, Ken, and maybe we can spend a couple of minutes on this, mm-hmm. that concept of making people feel comfortable enough to let loose or to speak up or do something new um, feels really hard today. Um, folks are, you know, whether it's on social media and the fear of constantly being judged or criticized or canceled, that sort of feeling, that fear has seemingly overtaken everything. It's not just Hollywood or a show or just politics. I mean, it's, it's, it's folks saying the wrong thing to their neighbors and being worried about not being comfortable enough to kind of be themselves. When you're talking to young folks trying to make their way in Hollywood or to a broader extent, the folks that are listening now and just trying to figure out how to go tell stories in their own life and, and be unafraid to do so. What's your advice been through the years and recently from your experiences? How do you how do you get folks comfortable with going and being themselves? Uh, as as banal as that sounds, it, it's kind of like the big challenge for society today. Is how can you be yourself in twenty four seven cancel culture social media environment? Well, I'm going to go back to standing on the set and 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 doing my directing job. I mean, in addition to creating an atmosphere where the cast feels loose and uninhibited. The, the, the bigger job is, and this is actually slightly different than I think was the case in the past. The bigger job for me is to create an atmosphere in which people feel safe, an atmosphere in which people feel acknowledged and respected. Now, I think, you know, once upon a time, actually, I don't want to say once upon a time. It still is very much the case that there are directors who feel that the best way to do their job is to to be tyrants, to instill fear, to, you know, fire someone on day one just so everyone else is on notice. Well, I, I, I think that's just, you know, bullshit. And I think that you can be a director uh, and get people to bring their A game without instilling fear, just the opposite. I think the way to get people to want to show up to work, to want to bring their best creative selves, is to create an environment where people feel at home. And I think in terms of the fear that you might say something, well, I think that if you create an atmosphere in which people feel safe and respected, I have a hunch that that will never happen. It, it's, it seems really fitting for you to say that, Ken, because in real time we're watching as a literal comedian who runs a country is at war with a literal tyrant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to ask you about military strategy in Ukraine, but I wonder what, what other advantages you think the comedian has that the tyrant doesn't that helps them prevail at the end of a story like that. Well, I can't speak. I mean, I can't speak specifically about, what the Ukrainian president is doing in terms of how he shapes his words and sentences and speeches. But there's no question that, you know, some of the greatest, you know, comic minds are, are, are the reason we're still talking about them is because they spoke truth, you know, uh, whether it's Lenny Bruce or, you know, I, I would say that, you know, that there, there were people who, uh, 
I mean, Richard Pryor, my Lord. I mean, Richard Pryor's career was, uh, you know, his, his stand-up work is, is kind of revolutionary. He just kind of went out there and said things that uh, you're not supposed to say. But, you know, but he, but he, but in doing so, he sort of got something out on the table that needed to be said. Or somebody, you know, somebody that, uh, that I worked with a lot, Bernie Mac. Uh, now Bernie Mac, you know, I spoke with Bernie Mac a lot about comedy actually. And he, he claims that he never really, he doesn't think in terms of jokes. He just tells stories that are based on his life and in many cases based on painful experiences in his life. So, I mean, the fact that he could basically tell his own story, uh, in a, in, in a very candid way, the audience would f- laugh in recognition. It, it was like the, you know, it, it was, they, they would find his stories so painfully relatable that they, they couldn't help but laugh. So again, another, another kind of truth telling, uh, different from Lenny Bruce, but, but just telling your own story. That's, I, I think that's a exceptionally powerful way to put it. That comedy is speaking truth. Ending us on a bit of a light note here. Is there anything, Ken, you're watching right now besides uh, the superb season two you've produced at Space Force, which I urge everyone to go watch? I'm sure you're rewatching it every day. Uh, anything that you're watching lately that uh, that really has you laughing or, or oh drama gosh. that you would recommend to folks? Oh, my gosh. I You know what? I... I will only say that when in doubt, I, I go back to the masters and uh, I'll, I, that changes every day. But today that means how many Buster Keaton shorts am I going to watch today? <laughs> so. Well, that's fantastic. Ken, uh, your Midwestern humility is enough that you will continue to reject my moniker of uh, the apostle of workplace comedy, but uh, folks see you that way. We're grateful that you've made us laugh, uh, but also that uh, through comedy folks like you help us to see truth. So uh, thank you for that. And uh, we appreciate you joining us. Miles. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you friends for listening to this episode of speaking up terrific to talk to director Ken Quapis. Uh, We've got more exciting guests coming up later this week and next week, and I hope you'll join us. Stay tuned.